You are listening to the Back Pain Podcast, episode 106, 10 years of treating back pain, how our practices have changed. Welcome to the Back Pain Podcast with Rob and Dave, the only show geared specifically to help educate you about your back pain. We talk to the experts to bust the myths, break down the science, and give you all the top tips for living pain-free. So, if you're driving to work, tidy in the house, or even laid up at home in pain, we have something for everyone. Welcome back, folks. This is the Back Pain Podcast. My name is Dave Elliott, and I'm joined by the godfather of back pain, Rob Bevan. Good evening, David. Hello, Rob. Um, so, look, today's episode 106. Crikey, I mean, can you believe it, mate? 106. 10 years of treating back pain, how our practices have changed. Now, this one, folks, is about me and Rob. Look, this is our, our personal experience of our practices, our daily routines, how we approach and treat lower back pain in our practices day to day, because we still do this. We chat on here in the evenings, but we're still seeing patients during the day. How has that molded, evolved, hopefully bettered over the last 10 years? I mean, it sounds good, doesn't it? I, I think that is, I mean, I think that's a good thing to note is this is a good thing. You know, we're looking at how we've changed and it's changed for the better. You know, everyone should be evolving as new evidence comes out, as new practices come out, as we learn more. So, you know, everybody, I think, who's been seeing people for the last 10 years will have evolved and changed you know, their stance, their beliefs, you know, and if you're not, you know, no one should be stuck fast in their beliefs that nothing should alter them. So this is a good thing, I think, that we're doing as a, you know, telling people how we've improved our practices. Well, I know, right? What a fantastic premise, the fact that, yes, change is good. Head in the sand, this is what I learned on day one of my university course 15 years ago. Therefore, that's what I'm sticking to. Um, it's not a great way to go forward. We can't be blinkered in our practice. We've got to be up to date. We've got to be looking for the newest um, uh, research and, and uh, sort of uh, turning points in the science rather than just sticking to what's easy, what's natural, what's natural, uh, what's easy is, is really what it is. Um, what's yeah. lazy and what works for us. We've got to keep on top of these things. Yeah, 100%. And as I said, that's what we should be. If you're seeing someone who's been the same thing to you for 10 years, it probably, you know, in, in a vast majority of cases, probably needs to be some element of change somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. And this is not about flip-flopping day to day. This is about taking a considered look at emerging research, science, and clinical trends and sort of piloting your clinical ship in that direction. Mm. Um, look, if you've got a doctor that approaches you for eczema with a leech and tells you to drop your trousers because they're going to draw some bad blood out of you, you'd probably look at them a bit like a nutter. Um, so why would we be sticking to our musculoskeletal guns and breaking down fascia and smashing tissue like we were told to do eight to 10 years ago? Um, it's just, it should be the same protocol, updating, evolving, staying on top of things. Yeah, I, 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 I totally agree. Do you think in the last turning point, in the last years, Dave, I can't speak, in the last 10 years or so, do you remember a turning point where you made a big change or, you know, something that really hit you that, you know, changed the way that you thought or practiced or did something, or has it been more of a slow process? I think it's a bit of a, a slow process. There, there hasn't, 
that I can think of off the top of my head, because we don't always prepare for these pods, you see guys. Um, off the top of my head, there's nothing, there was no sort of like one light bulb moment, but this consistent sort of chiseling away of, of what's underlying whilst we're kind of building up more. Although I've got to say, if we're looking at not necessarily one big thing, but one big groundswell, one bow wave of change. I mean, it's got to be the podcast, right? This has been a, an immense tool for change on a daily, if not weekly basis. Every time we interview someone, that's another brick in that edifice. It's another um, uh, little change to add on to that big change going forward. So yeah, I'd say the podcast as, a, as an overall, although it wasn't one moment, it's lots of little ones weekly. Mm. I'm, I'm better each Monday morning um, because of this. No, I agree. I think I've learned more in the last two years from speaking to other experts than I have in the last eight years. For, you know, as I said, for better, because you're not only just from speaking to them, whoever that might be, the research we then do behind the scenes in order to speak to them means we have to spend a lot of time, as you said, looking at different points of view, trying to come up with questions. And because it is you know, entirely patient-facing, and that's what we're aiming for, we're coming up with how can you know, you, the listener, someone with back pain, benefit from what we're talking about. So that's the angle we go from. So it's made us kind of challenge it in that way. I think the the biggest turning point for me, and I remember it specifically, I remember reading it, was a paper, I think it came in about 2011. Um, and forgive me, I, I never know how to pronounce his name. Um, E.L. Lederman. Lederman um, and there's a paper called uh, The Fall of the Postural Structural Biomechanical Model in manual and physical therapies, mm. um, all about lower back pain. And it was kind of looking at how traditionally manual therapists and physical therapists use this kind of structural, postural, biomechanical model to look at the causes of musculoskeletal conditions. So kind of what it was asking was, do these postural problems, do these structural problems that we see on x-ray, do they actually correlate with back pain? And when we were at university and when we had, you know, looking at people, the first thing we were doing was looking at people's postures and, you know, Dave, you know, you remember it well, I'm sure as you, as you do, as I do, you know, when someone had their, their anterior head carriage where their head was sticking a bit far forward or their shoulders were a bit rounded, we kind of said, oh, that's why they're getting neck pain. That's why they're getting back pain. And I remember reading this paper and thinking, oh, actually most people have these problems and don't, I say problems, most people have these normal signs, normal symptoms and don't have any pain. And it kind of got me thinking that, oh, well, actually, maybe this isn't the reason. And I remember diagnosing people with neck pain based on their posture or, you know, shoulder pain because their shoulders are a bit too rounded and that's probably what was the cause of their pain. But then we've learned now that it's far more complicated from that. And granted, I remember reading this paper thinking, well, why do people have pain? And, you know, I spent a lot of time trying to get to that answer. But I remember, I probably shared it with you, Dave. I remember reading this mm. paper being like, everyone needs to read this. Why, why didn't we study this one at <laughs> university? <laughs> Yeah, it's it was a real it's a really interesting paper because it does sort of knock down a lot of the cornerstones of what we were taught in university. And this is not just our course, this is all MSK structural based courses. It doesn't matter if you're, um, I would assume that the GPs were going to learn about this as well. I know certainly physios, osteos, chiros, 
uh, sports therapists across the land are to were told that a, a functional or a postural um, imbalance, let's call it, uh, it's been called all sorts of weird things over the years, yeah. will cause you pain down the line. You know, letting your head and your shoulders drop forwards is going to give you neck pain and degenerative changes and all these awful things. It was the, um, you know, the, the, the evil we didn't know about. How dare we sit slouched? Um, and then as, as this paper came along, it kind of made you realize, oh, actually, that was a load of bullshit. Um, and I'm, it was all well-meaning bullshit and it all seemed to, to work. I remember it, it being explained and thinking, well, fucking of course, that makes it complete sense. Um, but unfortunately, it was a bit too easy. It was too simple and it didn't take into account enough. Um, mm. I, I'm hoping, you know, I don't know what the syllabus is these days for new chiros, osteos, physios coming out. I hope they're taking this into account as they blend themselves out of school and, and change with the times. I know changing an entire syllabus of a university education is pretty bloody tough. Um, I'm hoping that the, the schools are changing with the times as well. No, I think they are. They're much more cognitive centric so they're much more looking at the wider aspects of pain and you know the numerous factors that we know that lead up to something like back pain it's not as simple as this you know bone out of place hip slipped posture you know anterior pelvic tilt you know we know it's much more complicated than that and yes you know that are these things playing a very very small role possibly in some small cases but they don't need to be corrected they aren't the cause of someone's back pain. So this is not what we need to be pinning the problem was. And then often, you know, the problem with this, and a lot, a lot of people might be asking or listening going, well, well, I had rounded shoulders or anterior pelvic tilt and I, I, I fixed it through these specific exercises I saw on YouTube and my back pain went away. And that's brilliant. I would never say stop doing that. But the problem is, and the problem this has created is people's worry. And we know that worry and anxiety around your posture, how you're sitting, your pelvic tilt, is only going to exacerbate a problem potentially in, in a lot of people. So, you know, creating fear where there doesn't need to be fear is never going to be a good thing. As for why people got better, well, that's just because probably they were doing some exercises or some aspect, some level of movement that they weren't necessarily doing before. If someone's sat on the sofa all day and they've been told they've got anterior pelvic tilt and now they have to do some specific pelvic exercises that might be 15 minutes a day more exercise than they've done in the last 10 years so that might be a, just that change is enough or is it just giving the spine some gentle load which we know is going to only help it you know when we're in pain anyway in, in a lot in a lot of cases and that's something we come around to again and again really isn't it? it it does the specificity of your exercise actually really matter no, not not from the science that's out now. Uh, it's just that getting that exercise done, the best exercise, mm. the best program is the one that you're going to bloody do, um, which in itself is quite freeing and fantastic and does explain why so many different things have been thought to have worked over the years. It doesn't mean that anything you've done so far is wrong. It's right. It just wasn't doing the thing that you thought it was doing. Mm. Yeah, and I think that's something I have changed as well. I used to be a lot more specific in kind of my exercise routine, my exercise prescription. Mm. And it'll all be a reason. I mean, obviously there's a reason behind each exercise, but you know, there'll be a much more specific reason of, oh, we need to do this to strengthen that core. We need to activate this specific muscle by doing this specific exercise. That's going to be unlocking it. Whereas now it's much more general. Yes, there's a method and especially someone's getting kind of like a return to sport. You know, we're going to be trying to do things that incorporate that. But generally, you know, with, you know, Mrs. Smith, who is 75, who's got some, you know, back pain for the first time. It's just about keeping moving. And that might be 
um, doing some simple toe touches. It might be walking. It might be doing some mini sit down and stand ups from a chair, just keeping it general. And it's just about keeping the movement there. So rather than giving you specific spinal stuff, and a lot of people come asking, well, I need some specific spinal exercises or I give them some squats and some lunges. And they say, oh, well, but these aren't really back exercises. And I've kind of, you know, it's, it's a difficult question to answer without saying, well, it doesn't really matter. You know, general exercise is going to be going to be really good anyway. So get doing this. Yeah. Um, and it can be a bit of a disappointment sometimes. Um, this might sound really silly, but people say, oh, I want a really specific exercise program for my problem. And I say, absolutely. Um, but we start off with kind of the same that I give everyone. And that's not me being lazy. It's because we start off with the basics of good quality movement and getting you wiggling around. Uh, it's personalizing the way that I've put your name on it. Um, and I've sent it to your email address, but you just need to get something done to start off with. Um, mm. It doesn't have to be meticulously fine-tuned in the early stages, which might sound a bit lazy, um, but I just think, yeah, decent movement is important or some movement is important. Uh, it doesn't have mm. to be these really specific granular programs um, uh, for each person. Just get them out, get them walking and get them moving. Yeah. What else do you think in the last 10 years, you, your, where, where else do you think your beliefs has changed or something else that you've changed in your day-to-day -day practice? Well, now I know that you're the same um, as me, Rob, because uh, you're a big story brand fan as well. Um, but I've repositioned the way that we talk about things, the way that we act from advertising, but <clears throat> mostly our um our conversations in the clinic have switched from I am the therapist, I'm here to save you. Where's my where's my red cape? Where's my entrance music? <laughs> therapist here to save the day. Um it's no longer about the therapist being the hero. It's not about me here fixing you. In fact, I go to great lengths to say, hey, look, by the way, I'm just giving you a bit of a nudge today. The other um, uh, 23 and three quarter hours of today um, is completely all up to you. You know, you're doing the hard work, your body's doing the healing here. I'm just giving you a bit of a nudge and I'm telling you what to do exercise wise. Um, so I've sort of repositioned all of, uh, and this is across the board in all our clinics, uh, we've repositioned the, um, the focus of this healing from the therapist to the patient. You know, it's, it's not us being the hero. We are just a, a helper along the way. We're the Yoda to your Skywalker. Your healing and your progress shouldn't be about your, patient, uh, your practitioner, your, your therapist, because what happens, that does help to breed a bit of dependency because fuck me, I better go and see that amazing person. When actually what it takes is an intervention. It shouldn't be dependent on this therapist. The hero, if you like, if we're, if we're using this story brand uh, style of talking, the hero here should be the patient. That's um, sort of number one. You know, That also puts the emphasis and the responsibility that's a massive one the responsibility onto the patient to get better it's not about waiting for someone else to fix you it's about personally getting it done having the uh the impetus to move to change lifestyle factors to get better yeah yeah no i, I couldn't agree more with that really it's the you know when patients come in they say like oh God, you know go and see so-and-so he's got magic hands that used to be something which, you know, sounds amazing. And, you know, obviously that's coming from a good place in a lot of time with patients. But 
if a patient thinks that my hands are magic, then I often think that that is coming from a uh, a difficult difficult place. If you, I said uh, the that's the wrong way to put it, really, it's coming from a a place where I obviously haven't explained my job well enough. Um, so whilst it's coming from a good place, a complimentary, it's meant as a compliment. It's kind of well, actually, I'm not really doing the job here. As we know that you know, manual therapy helps some people some of the time with you know some pain relief, but those effects are temporary. You know, it's giving you that window of opportunity to move more and stretch and walk around a bit, which hopefully in turn leads to your pain reducing and leads to those longer term changes. Absolutely, and it's it's being confident enough to dismiss that that compliment because because that's what it is. You know, someone's trying to be nice and saying, "Hey, look, Rob's got magic hands." Look, there's a big part of me when someone says, go see Dave, he's, he's a fucking magician. 90% of my inner being says, yes, I am. I'm amazing. And I want to grab that compliment and bloody run with it. However, <clears throat> I've got to listen to that pragmatic 10% and say, hey, look, it's not me. I'm just giving this person a wiggle. The important stuff is their moving. The important stuff is their body changing and their, their daily habits um, uh, reforming over time. I'm afraid it's not me being magic. They're doing all the work. And internally, I, I do have to give myself a little pat on the back and go, but you are quite good, Dave. Don't worry, you're very handsome. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, so it, it's having that confidence though to step back and then say, you don't actually need me for this. It's not me, the magician. I'm just a guy mm. on the way who's going to help you get there. Um, and that's a really tough thing for therapists. I know because we work bloody hard and a bit of praise sometimes, you know, we think, oh yes, grab onto that. But you, you've just got to let that slide past you. And yeah. you're, you're going to have a much better long-term relationship um, when you're happy to kind of give away the, the praise, if you like, and hand it back to the patient and say, look, you've done all the yeah. hard work here. It's not me getting up half an hour early before work so that I can go on a walk. It's not me that's not eating inflammatory foods or, um, uh, you know, getting into bad sleep patterns. That's you 24-7. You see me for this little nugget of time. Um, it's you doing the hard work, not me. I'm just some guy that you yeah. see every now and again. Um, that Yeah, Joe, that, that's a big change for me. Glory hunter yeah. that I am. I used to love a bit of praise. I'd, I'd bathe in it. I'd be like, oh, come on, give it to me. <laughs> Go on, tell me how nice I am. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's so true. And I think that communication is a big one as well. And that's something which I think only comes about with practice. Um, for anyone listening who might have seen a new grad as well, and I've been in this situation as a new grad or one, two year out, it's a very hard position, especially when you've got patients who you know you don't know what's going on with, um, or they ask very difficult questions. And having difficult conversations is a skill, and it's something which takes practice. And that goes for uh, whether it's giving prognosis to patients, whether it is um, giving them warnings about things like quadriquina, whether it is asking difficult questions around quadriquina. You know, there's definitely times when I was younger when I graduated that I, I should have done a more thorough quadriquina assessment. Um, often because it was a bit awkward or patients felt a bit awkward about it, asking questions about sexual function, bowel and bladder habits, you know, numbness around your genitals. You know, it can be an awkward situation when you've got a 23-year-old bloke and a, you know, a potentially older person, you know, they kind of think, well, who's this, you know, who's this jumped up young man, you know, asking me about <laughs> my sexual function. It can be a little bit of a, a an awkward conversation sometimes. So, that was that was a you know a bit of a learning curve. And I remember talking to my kind of like boss about it at the time and how do we ask about this? And then and I think I had it pretty nailed pretty well, kind of how I'd ask it. 
And then we had Rob Tyre on the podcast and he gave his version of how he screens patients for quadraquina and that was fantastic. And then it, my my assessment kind of flipped turned it on its head again because I took on board everything that he said and turned it slightly um, and kind of a few more deeper questions, which could be good or a follow-up questions or how he introduced the questions, you know, to say, you know, something along the lines of, so I'm going to ask some um, questions now, which, you know, might be a bit challenging. However, they do mean a lot. They are important, you know, so do please just bear with me. Yeah. Kind of setting yourself up to answer some or to ask some potentially difficult questions rather than just going, where does it hurt? Cool. Do you have any numbness around your, around your genitals? can be a bit of a, a bit of a u-turn so kind of keep it on track absolutely yeah do you know what that rob tire podcast was absolutely fantastic i can't remember the number off the top of my head but um uh, go back and check it out folks the the now the repetition which i've then installed into my practice and, and the practice of everyone that, that works for us of asking those questions at the start of every consultation for anyone who is um, at risk of any quadriquina syndrome um uh, complications it becomes an automatic part of the beginning of their um their, their their session their treatment session to the point where after a couple of sessions that patient is um coming in and sort of giving you the giving you the questions before you've even asked them it becomes a routine a pattern mm. and i think that what although Yes, that's made it easier for us to talk to the patient because, yeah, you're right, talking about numbness in genitals and sexual function, especially as a, a young uh, practitioner fairly fresh out of college, can feel really awkward. But when the patient knows what it's there for, they, they come in and report it to you, it's much better. But also when the patient knows verbatim that list of complications that we're looking for, I know that if any of those were to ever pop up, they'd know exactly what to do. There's nothing questionable there because I've not skated through them nervously and we've introduced that as a standard patterning at the start of every consultation. So they've repeated that five, six times in relatively quick succession. I know that if any of those complications were to pop up, that was part of that screen they make me do at the beginning. <gasps> That's a bad thing. I remember why. I think drilling the, uh, the complications like that is a huge change and I hope that we're going to catch some some nasties in the future and, and stop that from becoming otherwise worse than compared to if we just breeze past them once and hope that it wouldn't change and, and people would remember. I think the more we, and again, it's all part of that education, you know, we, we can't be holding the keys to this. We can't be um, uh, secretly guarding all of these questions. We've got to teach our patients, this is how you almost... Um, uh, diagnose yourself daily. This is how you wake up and do a systems check because this is what I'm doing when you're walking through the door. Uh, when they're as yeah. knowledgeable about that as possible, beautiful stuff happens. Yeah. So what about, you know, potentially the, the biggest question then, how has your kind of physical practice changed in 10 years with regards to whether that's manual therapy, with regards to manipulation, hands-on treatment, how has that changed for you in 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 10 years, I guess. Um, I'll give you a, a quick story here. Um, uh, so, so folks out there in the back pain podcast world, um, I actually started off my, my therapist career as a personal trainer. Um, and I'm upset to say that I was not a very good personal trainer. I didn't really know that you didn't have to brutally, um, uh, absolutely beast people every single session. If someone came into me for a personal training session, 
um, and they didn't leave the gym wanting to puke. I thought I hadn't done enough. I thought I was doing them a disservice. <laughs> Um, and as a result, I tended to break a lot of people. Um, and here I was as a young Cairo doing the exact same thing. If I didn't use every single heartbeat, every moment of a treatment session, doing physical hands-on treatment, leaving those patients feeling like they've been run over by a bus, um, because that's what we sort of treat, how we treated each other. And uh, we were, um, uh, Rob and I were, were doing very similar things in gyms whilst we were at university and heavily involved in sports and, and treating sports people. And that kind of mentality of if you don't get absolutely brutalized during a training session and therefore a treatment session, what's the bloody point? You have to walk in and saying, hey, I'd like to know that I've been worked on today. You get into that mentality. Um, I think I'll probably do less treatment now than I ever did. Um, I still adjust people. I still do tissue work and, and um, uh, fun um, mobilizations and, and movements. And I still dig my thumbs into people occasionally, but I do less and less and less as the days and weeks go on. Because I understand now the power of better movement, better communication. And I go through this and uh, a lot of people would probably be pretty um, uh, shocked by how little it takes to get people better. And I'm not gloating about being lazy. I'm, I'm possibly gloating about working more efficiently um, rather than assuming that you have to use every single second in a treatment time, <laughs> absolutely destroying people's tissue mm. and giving them something to feel like they've been worked on. Um, who would have thought the less you do, the better people get? I mean, crikey, if I could have told myself that 10 years ago, <laughs> I could have saved a hell of a lot of wear on those thumb joints. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I think that the trap that we fell into, and I think probably a lot of people fall into, is the assumption that firstly, everyone wants hands-on, which is definitely not true. You know, So when we see patients, you know, we're with the expectation that, well, they're seeing us in private practice, they must want some form of hands-on. Mm. And yes, a lot of people do, but not everyone does. I think as a chiropractor, there's always going to be a bias towards a manipulation or an adjustment. And you know, there's, and there's, there's an expectation around that. And sometimes expectation does drive reality. And what I mean by that is, you know, the patients come in expecting something and they want this. They might not really want it, but they think they need it. Um, so they ask about it. So that kind of will set a lot of chiropractors up for doing that. And I remember when I graduated, you know, thinking that, well, I'm a chiropractor. Everyone needs to be manipulated. And I was always not a very good manipulator. So I, you know, I made people worse and they and they felt a bit sore. And I quickly learned that actually maybe there's other things that I can do that uh, might be uh, <laughs> might might be better with that. Um, so I kind of learned the the hard way, really that way, just by trying lots of other things. That oh, actually people had the same results and weren't as sore when I did this, and that might have just been my my personal practice. I've never been the biggest lover of doing monotherapy. I still do monotherapy. I do it a lot. I do it on lots of my patients, but I've, there's a lot of things I would often rather be doing. Should I say that with, can I, can I say that? I'd rather do other things um, with patients, but then sometimes you see, you know, great results with people who expect it. And I think a lot of the times when someone's expecting something like manual therapy, they will get better because they want it. And expectations do drive that reality. Um, so I think understanding and a part of my consultation is talking to patients about what they're kind of thoughts and fears and expectations are. You know, if you've got someone who says, oh, I was really nervous about coming to see a chiropractor. I don't want you to do that thing to my neck that I saw on TikTok. Mm. Um, then obviously you're going to explain that, okay, there's no need to do that. And that's what if someone said, oh, I've actually had pain for 30 years, um, but every time I see a chiropractor, I get six months of relief 
and he does this thing to my lower back and it goes crack, it would be almost silly of me to straight away say, no, nah, it doesn't work like that. No, it's nonsense. I don't really do that. <laughs> but what you can use is use that as an opportunity to discuss, well, actually, you know, nothing is going out of place. Joints aren't being realigned. Use that as a springboard to gain the rapport and to kind of, you know, start discussing other things and opportunities. Another question I ask is, well, you know, would you be happy if you had the same result, but with um, with a different different type of treatment? Um, you know, obviously, you know, you've been having pain for 30 years, you're still having pain, you know, should we try a different avenue and have that open conversation about why another option might be preferable when it comes to something like manotherapy. So I think I have changed a lot. I do use a lot less manotherapy, but I still do it, but I use less of it compared to, you know, similar to Dave, every minute, you know, when I first started was, you know, touching patients and using every tool possible to, whether that was scraping tools and all this type of things to, you know, thinking it was going to add a different level and, you know, get someone a lot better when largely all these things do exactly the same thing. That's it. And that, yeah, that, that just confidence to take a step back and say, well, look, that's all we need for today. I'm sure you're going to feel fantastic. Um, is again, it's one of those things that you learn over time, I suppose. But I think if, if any therapist out there listening can learn from those mistakes, it's now pretty widely accepted um, in the fitness community, for instance, don't murder your clients week by week. You don't need <laughs> yeah. to leave the gym feeling absolutely cream crackered. It's not good long term. This should be bleeding into other industries as well. If, if, if it can um, bleed into the, um, uh, the the therapist industry, you know your your thirty minute slot doesn't have to be thirty minutes of physical treatment. It's just a thirty minute slot. I mean, yeah. Do you know what? That, that's that's what I say to every therapist out there who's leaving. If I could, if I could do a graduation speech at every uh, Cairo physio and osteo university out there, it would be your thirty-minute treatment doesn't have to be thirty minutes of treatment. Um, yeah, that's that's probably all I'd say. And then I'd, I'd sling my hat up and I'd say peace out. Yeah, um, uh, I, I think that'd <laughs> be like one of the that's it. Yeah, might drop and I'm out. Um, that'd be one of the biggest changes I could I could make to every therapist out there. Stop absolutely murdering patients. No, yeah, I I, <laughs> I totally agree. <laughs> awesome. Um, anything else, Rob? Any, any other huge revelations? Um, I. Th- I, th- I think that about kind of sums up the, the biggest things or the biggest changes to my practice kind of over the last 10 years. And I'm sure there's lots of little things I've done and extra techniques and um, better questioning that I've done, better communication. I think communication just gets better with time and practice. Um, I think the only other thing is learning to say when you don't know and you don't know what the problem is or you need to refer on. Um I think that all of us can be better at picking up red flags and things which don't quite smell right with a patient. And by the, by smell, I mean our kind of intuition, not how they physically smell. <laughs> um, you know, when things aren't quite sitting right, you know, we might be better at, at picking that up in a lot of cases, you know, knowing your gut instinct, I guess. Or, you know, we've all had serious cases of patients before and they might use a particular phrase that, you know, a patient might use in six months time and we kind of cotton on to that. Um, you know, so th- those type of questionings, I think, will all have improved naturally. But I think that is almost a given with anyone who's, you know, speaking to people or patients regularly. That's it. And look, we, we talked about this with, with Martin Christensen, didn't we? And we've, in fact, uh, Rob and myself went and did a talk to one of the chiropractic universities uh, down in Bournemouth. And we said, look, not knowing the answer is absolutely fine. It, 
I mean, you better bloody know it the next time, but um, it's okay not to know the answer there and then. That's fine. That's human. Uh, that, that is part of the joy of uh, a learning experience and treating people. I mean, you better bloody know it next time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah. I, I think, again, that confidence. So sorry, anyone who's just coming out of uh, university as we speak, confidence does take time. But um, knowing, hey, look, I don't know that today. That's okay as long as you know it for next session. But look, I'm going to spend the next week researching and I will be the best damn, I don't know, labral tear doc you've ever heard of uh, within the next seven days. When you come back and see me, I'm going to explain every little bit about it. That's okay. Um, yeah, rather than trying to bluff it and <laughs> squeaking through on yeah. some, some uh, uh, half-assed explanations. Um, yeah, I've no, been completely agreeing with Yeah, look, there's probably uh, uh, 100 miniature little bricks to make that large wall but i think that's probably the, the biggest sways or or biggest changes in my practice as well brilliant well thank you everyone for for listening you know it's been a fairly short one for us 30 minutes um so thank you everyone who's uh still around listening um if you want to go and check out any of the resources we mentioned the rob tire episode was episode 40 um and that is quarter equiner with rob tire episode 40 and the paper i mentioned if anyone would like to go and have a read it's called The Fall of the Postural Structural Biomechanical Bio, <laughs> Biomechanical Model in Manual and Physical Therapies by E-L, which is E-Y-A-L space Lederman, L-E-D-E-R-M-A-N. Type in any of that into Google and a result will pop up and you should be able to read the full paper for free. I really recommend anyone um, does go and read it. It's a very interesting uh, piece of work just to help understand some of the uh, or where your therapies might be coming from. And around, a reminder, if you are someone who is suffering with back pain, Remember to head on over to your website, thebackpainpodcast.com, where you can simply put in your postcode and find someone local to you who's tried and tested by us to help with your back or any musculoskeletal injury that you might have. They will be, and you know that they're guaranteed by us to be evidence-based and, you know, really bloody good. So, you know, we don't, uh, we don't sell bullshit here. So <laughs> that's what we're all about. Love that. And a quick shout out to our therapist listeners as well. We're getting more and more... Um uh, contact uh, over socials and emails from therapists who are listening in. It's been a bit of a therapisty uh, episode, actually. Um, <clears throat> do not be afraid to give us a hollux. We do love hearing from you. It's been a really interesting split between, you know, this is supposed to be a patient-facing podcast. Get out of here. Um, but actually, it's been really great to uh, have uh, therapists on board and listening intently as well. If you're a therapist that is in the university settings, so if you're halfway through or getting through your course, um, do give us a little contact and push your universities or course providers to have fantastic talkers like ourselves along so we can change uh, healthcare providers' education from that very coalface. Um, we're doing quite a few talks this year to different universities and we will come and uh, help educate your, um, uh, your manner as well. Fantastic. Okay, uh, Rob, thank you very much for joining us. That is the Back Pain Podcast, episode 106. 10 years, my God, 10 years of treating back pain, what we've done to change it. Uh, we'll see you in another 10 years, folks. Over and out.